Welcome to Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi, the podcast where we think about how we can live healthier, happier, and more fulfilled lives. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michelle Choi. Hello, folks. Thank you for joining me today. We have Rebecca Hurtis on the show to talk about adoption. And well, it's a fascinating conversation as she shares her perspective as an adoptee. I've been thinking about something that Rebecca mentioned in the conversation for days after the interview, and it's the idea that adoption is associated with trauma. The idea that trauma could be at the center of all adoption, as adoption cannot occur without trauma. And as I thought about it more, it made sense. Separation trauma is trauma, and it can include the circumstances surrounding one's conception, for the birth parents getting pregnant and giving up their child, the connections that are ruptured and the reality of the loss, the impact of the separation trauma that adoptees carry into their lives, which also affects the adoptive parents. We, as a culture, idealize adoption, suggesting that it's unilaterally positive. The idea that this child can enter into a new family and just be loved and, well, live happily ever after. But from this conversation, I learned that it's much more complicated. Sometimes the trauma is obvious, especially in foster care, where children are taken out of their home because it is unsafe, and they carry their trauma into their foster family. As we discussed in episode 34, The Gift of Love, where Monica Martinez spoke of her family's experiences with foster care and adoption. But even in the adoption of a baby into a family, where trauma is less obvious, it's present. Nancy Verrier originally published her book, The Primal Wound, in 1993. And in her theory of the primal wound, She illustrates how abandonment and loss can be imprinted on the unconscious minds of those who have been separated from their biological mothers at birth. She describes it as a wound that is physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual, a wound which causes pain so profound as to have been described as cellular. She brings up the idea that bonding between a mother and baby doesn't begin after birth. She invokes established research on bonding and attachment to propose that it's a continuum of physiological, psychological, and spiritual events beginning inside the womb and continuing through the postpartum bonding period. But when there's an interruption of this natural period of bonding, according to Verrier, it creates a primal wound. This idea can provide validation for the experiences and feelings of adoptees who have often felt misunderstood. It can bring solace to birth mothers who have long been denied the truth of their loss. And it can be a source of information for adoptive parents so that they can better understand and respond to their children. In a later discussion that we had together, Rebecca brought up that even if you're not aware of the primal wound, with transracial and transnational adoption, when the kids look differently from the parents, society and peers reinforce the difference so often that it eventually becomes one, the idea that the wound is reinforced or created. Lynn Grubb, in her article, which was originally shared on the Lost Daughters website, share some of the key lessons and outlooks on life she discovered as an adopted person. One of the lessons that she talks about is how she learned that reunion cannot repair ruptured connections. She states that it is not possible to repair a ruptured connection that took place at birth or shortly after birth. A child can connect and bond with a different caregiver, and people can have positive reunions. However, the rupture of the original bond between mother and child can never be fully repaired. Reunion is an attempt to regain what was lost. 
However, it is not possible to repair something as great as years of time that was missed out on. Children need time and they bond closest to those who are with them the most. I find her lesson so interesting because we sensationalize the reunion of an adopted person and their biological family, but we don't see the true work that is involved in building any relationship, especially a primal relationship that was broken many years ago. When I was reading about the primal wound, I discovered the work of Dr. Marcy Axness, who is an adoption therapist and an adoptee herself. There's a spiritual philosophy that proposes that we choose everything that happens to us in our lifetime, that our souls have a blueprint of life experiences to experience, to help develop our soul into its true shape. She states, What if, for my true self to become manifest, I not only needed to experience being separated from my original mother at birth, but also needed acknowledgement and empathy for that very painful experience. When speaking about adoptees, she wonders if they carry both a burden and a blessing, but the burden is not often named or spoken of. She states that many adoptees have gone through their lives in the grip of an intangible burden, a burden with no definition, no resolution. She continues to state There have been few opportunities in the lives of most adoptees to achieve the first kind of resolution. All eyes in our adoptive families were on the blessings, so ours had nowhere else to look. We were blessed that you came to us, was never balanced with, it was hard for you that you had to leave your other mother. You're a precious part of our family, didn't allow for, I wonder if those blue eyes came from your birth mother or birth father. The burden experienced by the adoptee pre-verbally or precognitively had no context, no language through which to be recognized as such. You can read more at marcyaxness.com. Author Mary Knight wrote that out of wound comes blessing, a primal blessing, that plants us with purpose as it propels us forward into our lives. I do believe we have the possibility to heal and to really feel like ourselves, but we have to recognize how we feel to know where we need healing, how we need healing to put us back on our life's path. Born in Seoul, Korea, Rebecca Hurtis is a transracial, transnational adoptee. She spent her childhood on the East Coast before moving to California when she was 20 years old. Growing up in the 1980s and 90s, when most of America believed in the model minority myth and assimilation for Asian Americans, Rebecca argues that such beliefs are false and dangerous. She graduated from UC Santa Cruz from the Women's Studies Department and received her PhD from UC Berkeley's Ethnic Studies Program. Her doctoral dissertation focused on how racial identity is formed within the intimacy of family for both adoptive parents and their transracial, transnational adoptee child. She has been an adjunct lecturer at UC Santa Cruz and CSU Monterey Bay, teaching courses that recenter marginalized and underrepresented populations. Additionally, she was a former executive director of a residential program for homeless pregnant women before returning back to UC Santa Cruz as staff. In her personal and professional life, she continues to be inspired and guided by her commitment to creating a more equitable community and society. She lives on the north coast of Santa Cruz County with her spouse and their teenage daughter, enjoying the expansive natural beauty that surrounds them. She has lived in the Santa Cruz area for over 20 years. Hello, Rebecca. Thank you so much for being here and welcome to Lost or Found. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) It's really great to see you again. Nice to see you too. And Rebecca, can you tell us a little about yourself? I am a 
almost 47-year-old transracial, transnational adoptee from Korea. Uh, I grew up on the East Coast in Maryland and Connecticut, and then have lived out in California for close to 25 years at this point, and mostly in Santa Cruz area. Um, so how has adoption shaped your identity? Um, I think that adoption has shaped my identity kind of completely. I don't know who I would be without the circumstances of my adoption, without the circumstances of it, of being racially different and also of have being adopted transnationally. Um, I think that those circumstances have completely defined who I am um, always. I don't think that I could ever kind of escape that. Mm-hmm. How old were you when you were adopted? I was six months old. I was um, I was released into foster care in South Korea and Seoul when I was, I think, a couple of weeks old. And then I was into a foster family until I was adopted or until I flew over to the United States um, when I was six months old. Mm-hmm. Do you have any, like, history that was released when you were adopted? So uh, with Korean adoption, with South Korean adoption, because people always ask if I was adopted from the North or South, um, which wrong is a, time period, yeah, wrong time <laughs> period and not the same countries. Um, and so um, when I was adopted, so I was born in 1974, the adoption agencies really gave all families adopting internationally the same story, which is that your baby was abandoned, has no real information, and is kind of a blank slate. Mm -hmm. Families, mostly from the U.S., really liked that narrative because um, it was a blank slate for their baby. They didn't have to think about birth families. They didn't have to think about really anything except this new baby that they could absorb into their family. And so it was really popular for everyone to have these stories. It wasn't really into until the mid-90s when adult Korean adoptees started returning back to Korea and asking a lot of questions and mm-hmm. wanting to see their actual files that suddenly you see that there was a whole other system that was just kind of hidden. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I went back to Korea in um, maybe 99, I think I went there, um, they had an entirely separate file from the file that I had always seen that my parents had. The English file versus, mm-hmm. like, the Korean file? Yeah, in a whole different system. And I went with two friends who were also uh, Korean adoptees, and they were adopted from a different organization. So we kind of saw both systems or two different agencies' approaches. And these were the biggest agencies at the time for Korean adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then you saw that there actually were interviews that with birth parents and people really did um, have to sign these register books. Uh, there was a really process. Push. There was much more of a process. There was interactions with social workers. There was um, information that was collected. So this is why it's even possible for now people to be, quote unquote, reunited with their birth families mm-hmm. that were adopted from Korea. Um, and because otherwise, previous, it was kind of an unknown Yeah, it's interesting, you know, like before in the past, like when babies were adopted or children were adopted, you know, it was like their history was detached or they came unattached. And people love that. It's a very romantic, I mean, you see it kind of play out in fairy tales and it's like you get to a family, an adoptive family, then gets to rewrite whatever sort of identity they want to have on it, right? And so with Asian babies and specifically because it's been so disproportionately gendered to be mostly girl babies, then there is this kind of fantasy, um, this Western fantasy of saving kind of an Asian girl baby Mm -hmm. from the sexist evils of Asia, whether that's Korea, Vietnam, or China. But it kind of rewrites itself over and over again. And then what happens to that 
baby that becomes a girl that becomes a woman and how she's racialized differently in the U.S. Yeah, because even with the Korean adoptions, you know, I guess it primarily started after the Korean War Mm -hmm. and it was primarily like mixed racial babies with like, I guess, soldiers and Korean women who were adopted initially. Then the, I guess, the religious sects or religious organizations got involved and maybe it helped to feed that whole narrative saving and yes i mean i think that the war in imperialism and colonization certainly has a gendered and racial agenda attached to it and so um it absolutely had a play on how you uh, elevate whiteness and degrade Asianness, and also who's kind of a savior, right? So it's like the U.S. can go in, cause all of this destruction, physical violence, sexual violence, economic violence, all of these things, and then and at the same time, some also save kind of the women and children from that, right? Even though that they're the ones that have caused the trauma and the upheaval, then there's this gesture of like, oh, we'll take care of, yeah, yeah. But I think that's the keyword that you say, like, there was trauma involved. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Adoption can't occur. Any sort of adoption, um, whether it's transracial or transnational, domestic, same race, whatever, without trauma. I mean, trauma is the center, I believe, of adoption. There are many transformative moments that takes that trauma and does something else with it. Mm -hmm. But no one enters an adoption triad without trauma even if it's intended, right? So uh, adoptive parents, especially in this moment of time, are normally coming to adoption because of infertility and everything that their history has led up to um, in thinking about their struggles in, in trying to conceive biologically. And no birth parent thinks that they want to get pregnant and relinquish their child, right? This is typically because they know they're making these choices because they know they don't have a safe place or a safe way to raise their child. And primarily it's economic, right? And no child, no adoptee walks away from this without trauma because our culture is so much about blood is thicker than water, blood matters, biology matters, who, and, and it's almost the unfathomable, right? If you look at another woman or if how could you give up your flesh and blood mm-hmm. to someone else? So the abandonment and the trauma that comes out of an adoptee or the, the judgment. Yeah, is, is always. I mean, one of the first questions that I've always been asked when people find out is, if that I am adopted is have you looked for your birth parents? Mm-hmm. Because there's a sense that I actually can't be complete or whole if I haven't found my biological parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we perpetuate that, even though we think that, oh, society's moving and so, progressing so much that we have adoption as part of our stories, right? You can look in any pop culture thing and adoption is, there's now gonna be an adoptee character. Mm-hmm. Um, And before, when I was growing up, that wasn't the case. Just like we look at TV programs and you can have, see a more racially diverse um, crew of, or panel of actors, but is that actually diversity or is that really equity? I don't want to feed the cliche, but did you grow up (laughs) feeling like there was a part of you missing or that there was something lost through adoption? Um, Absolutely. I mean, I don't think that, even if adoptees can find their family, like my family is my family, my adopted family is my family, there's no distinction in that. Um, There is a presence of an absence, I guess, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, again, because there's this whole other history and for me, a whole other country that is completely unknown to me, um, sure, you kind of experience that. And I think that adoption, and because I was racially different, was something that I dealt with probably every single day of my life, mm-hmm. multiple times a day. When did you recognize that feeling? Um, I don't remember not knowing it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, in the 80s, 
walking around with a white mom in a grocery store, anywhere. I mean, anywhere you look different. Like if we in 2021 can see a transracial adoptee family walking down the street and it still causes us to take a double take or to try to figure out or like, oh, well, maybe that's an interracial couple or maybe that's whatever. And we actually pause. Then obviously in the 80s, that was a little bit more blatant. Yeah. I mean, it is. It even exists now, right? Like, my husband's white, our kids are mixed. And when William was little, you know, some a friend at a wedding had asked, a person at a wedding had asked my husband if William was adopted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, we think that race has transformed so much. It's mm-hmm. just, uh, ignorance is just presented in a different way. <laughs> yeah. What was your childhood like? Um, my oldest brother is also adopted and my mom, and then I also have a middle brother who's biological to my parents. Um, I think we led a pretty average middle class, white middle class kind of life. I, my parents, um, I would say would fall probably more on a progressive kind of socially and politically. My mom much more so. So people that adopted in the 80s, uh, in the 70s and 80s, were people that came out of civil rights, parents that came out of the civil rights movement. So they absolutely believed that there was a different version of of America that was coming and that they wanted to be part of it. Mm -hmm. Many people many people that I spoke to, many parents that I spoke to in working on my dissertation cited these moments of um, marches they participated in, protests they participated in. Um, the other portion of Korean adoption was that they needed to, there was a religious missionary component to it. And many parents ascribed to that as well, um, that this was kind of their Christian duty to do. Mm-hmm. We also, most of the agencies were Christian-based, so there did need to be a promise to these agencies that they would fulfill raising their children in a Christian way, especially because that was so important to Korea. As you know, Korea is so Christian. Um, It is considered the best missionary project out of, for all of Asia, because it was so successful. The missionaries were so successful. And there's a huge stigma against the single mother. And there's a huge stigma against the single mother. And so it was really important for Korea to place their children into Christian homes. Mm -hmm. And so that is this this also unspoken relationship. So the largest population of Korean adoptees is in the Twin Cities of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And part of it is because of missionary and religious affiliations and um, that that becomes this big pocket of adoptees. It's interesting. I do know the adoptees from Minnesota. <laughs> Korean adoptees. Yeah. Why did your parents adopt then? Um, My mom first adopted my oldest brother because she was having fertility issues. And my brother was adopted in, my brother was born in 1969. Um, He would be considered probably one of the last white available babies or available white babies before birth control became more readily available and also Roe v. Wade. Um, And then they had my second brother biologically And then my mom, my parents were living in Maryland and uh, they wanted a girl. And there's other people in Columbia, Maryland that were adopting from Korea. Mm -hmm. So they decided, they decided to do it. Yeah. Did you have a happy childhood? Um, I guess in part, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what's a happy childhood. (laughs) How would you describe your childhood then? Um, there's moments of, I suppose, there's moments of ease and joy and innocence and all of those things. And I guess it, it depends on what do you categorize as childhood. So I think from um, when I was younger until we maybe moved to Connecticut, I it was probably more of an idyllic childhood. It was we lived in Maryland, and which was a somewhat racially diverse and economically diverse place. And we moved to Connecticut, which was less. We moved to a very small town, 
Um, there was less than 10,000 people in my town. There was maybe 65 people I graduated with out of the public high school. 65? And I was one of, you know, maybe 10 people of color in my whole school. Mm. So, you know, but I think, like, I started sixth grade when I was there, and then obviously through high school, and so is that childhood, you know? It's like, the teen years, I think, are much different than the elementary, middle school years, and so, yeah, I guess it depends what you mean by childhood. Um, and then things became much more complicated as I got older. Things felt more complicated. I think, I mean, the first day that I went to school in Connecticut, I was called a chink or a gook. I mean, from the first second that I stepped yeah. off of the bus. So I grew up in New York and those were words I actually heard all the time. All the time. Even as an adult, like if you made some kind of misturn on the street from adults. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Racism is more in your face on the East Coast, I think. On the, in California, I think sometimes there, there's a little bit more hiding, even though it exists. But on, in, on the East Coast... It's definitely more in your face. And I'm not sure if that's better or not. You know, I'm not sure. Like, at least they're not hiding it. But wow, you know. I think it's better, but I think it, I think that it's better. I appreciate that it can be so honest. I think then you start going into spaces where you feel very uncomfortable yeah. because it's so honest that you don't, you realize that your access to places is somewhat different than in in California or most places I go in California. And I think the pandemic has made that exaggerated even more. I remember my- And especially as a kid, when you don't have any coping mechanisms, at least like adults can kind of think it out a little bit. Yeah. But not children. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the racism on the East Coast is its particular, particular kind. And these words are like nothing that my daughter really ever hears. Mm-hmm now and she's 15 I don't yeah especially gook I think gook is like one that is so very specific but I was trying to tell her too like we grew up in a time when there was a lot of nostalgia for Vietnam mm -hmm. the Vietnam War and all of the movies that were coming out about the Vietnam War during like high school years um and like it's totally out of context for her yeah I and mean, I think when we were growing up that was like still probably the period where there was still so much PTSD you know having survived the Vietnam War mm -hmm. and then so many people that so many of my friends grandparents had also served in the Korean War mm -hmm. and so their idea of Korea and Korean was very much shaped by that. Like, I remember one of my friend's grandparents saying that he loved Korean women, especially the blue-eyed, blonde-haired ones. You know, and he was, like, clearly referencing women that had made them, Korean women who had made themselves look more, quote-unquote, Western or American and hanging out on bases or hanging out on near bases. and kind of so gross. Insinuating this, the sex worker kind of <laughs> aspects of war. Um, but yes, it was pretty gross. <laughs> yeah. Can I ask you in 1999, when you looked at your file, were you able to look at your file when you I went was. back to Korea? Yeah. So um, I was, I really had no interest in finding my birth family. And the two women that I was, tra that I was traveling with, they really did want to find out who their birth mothers were. Um, and so my file had like all of this information kind of that my parents had, my biological parents had been together since they were in high school, had gotten pregnant, were also deciding not to be together. So that's why they were, were they giving young? me up. They were, yeah, they were like in their late teens, early 20s, mm -hmm. I want to say. Um, they had come to Seoul, I think, to place me for adoption and to kind of start their more adult life. I can't remember where they were from, um, where they were from originally. And, you know, I had access or I guess I have access to the equivalent of like a social security number. So I could find them if I wanted to. 
And they could find me if they wanted to. So in the records, because now all of these adoption organizations also now have to have post-adoption services because there was such a demand from adoptees to rectify the situation, um, that there, I could do a search. And I, I could have the adoption agency help me with a search. Um, at the time and still, I don't really feel that much of a desire to. I don't, um, and I certainly don't want to actually give more money to the adoption agencies to help me mm. with the search. I don't really believe in the, um, I don't believe in the kind of adoption industry that mm. it's turned into. I think that Korea wound up having to. You mean because it's become so lucrative? Because it is so, it was so lucrative by giving up babies. And mm-hmm. now I think Korea is seizing another moment, or Korea did seize on another moment because it became another financial mm-hmm. opportunity, right? You think that a country thinks that they're alleviating their social burden by sending their babies out. And, you know, the country is not going to have to be financially responsible for this whole population. And for Korea, it was... Because there's still no, like, social welfare system in Korea. Exactly. And there was about 200, 250,000 children that were sent out. And so so in that moment, they're alleviating their responsibility. What they did not anticipate was that global, the global world would look how it looks and the 90s and early 2000s and now, and that all of these adoptees were adopted into pretty privileged homes and families that have certain entitlements and certain educations and all of these other things that would be going back to Korea to demand answers. So, I mean, Korea has formally apologized, mm-hmm. um, and but there is another financial opportunity, right? So homeland tours and reunification services and for a while in the It's like a double standard. It's a double standard. Yeah, like while you're correcting what had happened, but they're also making money. Yeah. And I think in the early 2000s, it was a really popular thing on Korean TV to have these reunification stories that would happen of like surprise and cameras following an adult adoptee trying to meet their birth families for the first time and to um, kind of elicit this emotional response, right? And this thing that everyone could be voyeuristic about and consume it and make Koreans feel better about it, make, I don't know, adoptees kind of feel better, but it seems a very weird way to like the good the good trauma. part, you know, like they want to know the honeymoon, but not actual what happens thereafter. Yeah. I mean, just like Phil Donahue and Sally and, you know, Ricky Lake here. And I mean, that was sort of the equivalent, I think, there. Yeah. It's like you're, you know, what is that word? Not ostracizing, but... um. When you're using a situation to benefit from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I, 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 but so I, to answer your question in a very long-winded way, I never, I could find it. I have a file, um, but I never really looked at it beyond that afternoon in Korea. Mm-hmm. I never really, I have no desire. I don't know. And I also know that... Um, my birth parents have also not tried have not tried to find me either because it would have been in the file mm-hmm. or there would have been more contact or the adoption agency could have uh, mediated that or still would, I would imagine. And it's okay. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know what sort of answers they could give me because I think that some of the struggles of my identity are more esoteric than that. Right. I, I think that the ways in which we feel not enough or are lost are not literal. So you can't have someone then say to you, it's because of this or it's not logical. Yeah. Right? It's like really it's like a, and it's a process of the self some, most of the times. And it's, I think, for adoptees and a lot of adoptees, regardless of race, um, and people that have written about adoptees call it the primal wound because it's such a visceral thing. Mm. Um, and I and I absolutely believe in that. I mean, it, yeah, I absolutely believe in that, in that when you have a baby, 
And, and now that I've had a baby, like you are so attentive to it, even if you don't feel like it, you know, your babies cry, your body has a physiological reaction to it. If you're nursing or even if you're not nursing, there is something that is connecting you to this other being that you have also grown in your body. And, and your baby is your newborn is relying on you for these things, whether it's your voice that they can say that, you know, everyone says that babies can recognize the voice and smells and scents and all of these, these very visceral parts of us and very physical, physical parts of ourselves. And so, yeah, taking your newborn and leaving them with someone else or your, and for that baby to be left and to be searching for that familiarity and that goes unresolved is a physiological, biological, visceral um, disruption yeah. and abandonment and wound. For both parties, don't you think? Or all parties involved? For all parties involved. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know how you um, can necessarily mend that with just a reunion, yeah. right? Like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to, or whatever story or narrative that a birth family would need to have and that an adoptee would need to have for that reconciliation is not really kind of the heart of the matter to me. Um, the story is much more complicated. It's much more complicated. And, and, and I can respect that complexity. Mm-hmm. And that's why I don't really feel this greater need. Um, I think that it's like beyond some of these wounds and also the ability to heal it's it's beyond words it's mm-hmm. beyond kind of logic it's beyond all of those things and it feels it has always felt a little bit invasive and disruptive for me to try to find people that made this decision made this decision believing that it was going to be somewhat anonymous mm-hmm. and that they would have their kind of privacy for me to go back and quote unquote demand some sort of answers or can f- make them confront some sort of uh, aspect of themselves in their past that they weren't necessarily ready to do. I also think that this is right. Our understanding of emotion and process and healing in the U S is very different <laughs> than um, perhaps what emotion and family obligation and all of these things look like in Korea. Yeah. So I think that that also feels very entitled. In Korea, I feel like even more so than our culture, it's how things look on the outside, okay. how the family looks. And I think there's a lot of suppression involved. Mm-hmm. I mean, the society is changing slowly, but mm-hmm. it's how perfect the family looks or how a beautiful a woman looks with plastic surgery. You know, it's the facade. Yeah. And, you know, on just a very practical note, it's like it was the working class that gave their children up for adoption into a first world country, first world countries that were middle to upper middle class families, typically, not always, obviously. And so there's a huge international class difference between these two that comes with their own cultural assumptions of what's right. And so for me, it's always just felt not not right or not authentic for me to pursue. Rebecca, how are you healing your primal wound? I think having my daughter was a big way of healing my primal wound, I guess. And um hmm Yeah, I mean, having her and seeing the joy and kind of recovering those moments that were lost. Some parents that have adopted from China always uh, would write about and and talk about um, how orphanages were the quietest places Mm -hmm. uh, they had ever been to, which is so sad to me. And I thought about it a lot with my daughter and thought a lot about it well before that. But like how often babies cry um and that when she's crying she's healthy yeah and then how often in an orphanage have babies cried for to then understand that no one's coming yeah um and so that's why they're quiet not because they're i think sometimes parents talked about it as like they're such good asian 
quiet babies, like kind of fulfilling these stereotypes about Asians rather than really paying attention to that needs weren't met. Yeah. And so that's why. It's amazing to think that babies can even quickly adapt to shit, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Um, so I think through my daughter, I also think just time, you know, that we, I think probably in my twenties, like most 20 year olds, I was a little bit more angsty mm-hmm. of needing to know everything. And I think as I've gotten older, it's okay, I guess, surrendering to some of it and trying to forgive and, um, accept what is or what was not or mm-hmm. what has happened or what will happen yeah. trying to let go of it a little bit more um you know as a mom how when you when you share a moment with your child you know i think i oftentimes think of my own mother you know do you think of your own mother as well as your biological mother what she's missing or what she missed hmm um, like you have two mothers you could potentially think about. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah, I, I think about my biological mother. There's certain places where I've always thought about my biological mother, and that is um, often in churches and weirdly in Catholic churches. Uh, in front of Mary, and um, there's some sort of pull or connection about my birth mother and and Mary. Um, and I love, I, I don't love Christianity, but I do love Mary. <laughs> I love Mary too, the ultimate mother. Uh-huh. Um, and I see around her room also uh, <laughs> Guan Yin. Like, you have all of them here. <laughs> Sorry. No, I have a ton of... Plus Manjushri, you know, the god of wisdom. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I wonder about her life and in some ways it does make me a little bit sad, um, for, for the loss that she had to endure and, and then what her life looks like. I think the biggest, the biggest surprise for a lot of adoptees when they did re, um, reunite with birth families was that birth families had whole other families. I think that there's this kind of romantic idea that oh and that you're told like oh you were given up for adoption so they could try to do life better or they could try to do um the moving on aspect without being included yeah and then all of a sudden people are uh even though you're in pain like I, I don't think like as a mother like knowing what it's like to be a mother when you give up your child I don't I for most women I don't think it's possible to ever forget that child no yeah. No, I would imagine it would be very difficult. And I think then that adoptee also has this kind of presence absence in their family yeah. as well. Um, but yeah, I think that a lot of people were surprised mm-hmm. that there were these other families or that they already had active siblings, that they were already part of an intact, somewhat intact family mm-hmm. and that decisions were made about who would be placed for adoption or when. Um You asked me about my oh. mother's. Well, I thought it was very interesting that you think of her when you go into a church mm-hmm. in front of Mother Mary. Mm-hmm. Because I wonder, you know, there's physical things that we see. And I wonder if we come from somewhere or someone, there's always that spiritual tie, even if you've never met them before. Mm-hmm. You know, you you were in her womb. Mm-hmm. You felt her heartbeat. And it's like ourselves take a bit of that. Or remember that. Yeah. 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 And this has been since, I think the first time I really felt it was maybe I was in seventh or eighth grade and there was a class field trip to Quebec, I want to say. And we were in this Mm -hmm. one, one church there. Yeah. And then ever since then, I normally always, if I go into a Catholic church, Wherever in the world I am, I always will write, light a candle for her and take a minute. Do you feel like you're healing that bond as well? Yeah. I guess so. I hope that she just doesn't 
my wish for her is always that she is not kind of tormented by it. Mm-hmm. Because it's also okay. And then my other mom, um, my mom was able to be with me for a lot of Bella's upbringing. And so she got to share a lot of that with me. Were you close? Uh, my mom and I were close. Complicated, of course. <laughs> but close. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time with her after I had after I had my daughter. She came out for weeks, for months at a time. Mm-hmm. She really wanted me to finish my dissertation. That's so sweet. And so she came out and would just take her. She would come for four to six weeks at a time so I could just write mm-hmm. um, and just help me with life. So they had a pretty... They had a pretty strong bond. And it was interesting to always watch kind of my mom be this other, not parent, obviously, but this other role to now my child and what that meant and to see parts of my childhood or parts of her parenting, but not quite. I mean, I think that there is a great freedom. It looked like from being a grandparent mm-hmm. um, and not having to assume all of the responsibility of parenting and getting to do the best parts of it. And so, yeah, but in my mom and I, I mean, probably from 20 on, I've always been very honest about my experiences about adoption with my parents and mostly my mom would want to have those conversations more. Um, and certainly discussions about that I feel like they actually were not equipped to deal with a racially different child um, and wondering why. They Do you felt, know that now? So they felt they were not they ready? Felt, well, mm-hmm. they felt like they were fine. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like they were not. <laughs> yeah. And they weren't. They weren't. I mean, if, if, most people see America as a black and white issue, but they're adopting a child that doesn't fit into a black and white kind of option. Then what option do parents have to put their kid in? What category do they put their kid in? And for Korean adoption, they put their kid into a white category, but that doesn't work because we're not, no one else sees us as white, right? They might see us as quote unquote assimilating or being a model minority or whatever they want to, whatever positive spin they want to put on it. But even in the remark of that there is not racism by Asian Americans, you are still citing the very difference that you're trying to ignore. So you're always kind of invoking a racial, racial difference. If even if it's like to say, oh, well, being Asian is not as bad as being Black or being Latinx, mm-hmm. right? Um, but, yeah, so no, I don't think that my parents understood what that meant. And then going back to, you know, where we grow up, grew up on the East Coast and that racism looks very different on the East Coast. And so how do you then navigate that for your child when you yourself have never really had that experience. Mm -hmm. Because even right now, like I noticed in California and I had my guard up for a while, you know, but I don't necessarily feel so different here. But in New York, I was constantly aware that I was Asian. (laughs) Do you feel the same or? Yeah. When I go back, it's definitely a different awareness just because there's just by numbers, right? There's not, that many like when I go back to the east coast I typically will kind of scan the room to see how many other people of color mm-hmm. are there and there's and that's generally constantly not right yeah. <laughs> like you are the only one <laughs> and so it does have a different um again kind of Like, especially in the pandemic, I feel like it's a different level or different awareness of safety Mm -hmm. Um, because moving around or when we were back there this summer uh, with my daughter and my best friend who came with me, who's also a Korean 
adoptee, like, and we were masking even when people weren't masking, then we look even more racially different and more of a spectacle mm-hmm. um, because we're in mostly white spaces mm-hmm. and then we're Asian and we're masking. Um, but Santa Cruz is also not that different. I mean, I remember when the pandemic first happened, my daughter, I had like a cold and my daughter was, we were out in public and I was coughing. She's like, you cannot cough. <laughs> you cannot <laughs> cough in public. Stop it. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, there is always this kind of racial awareness. Yeah. Your mom died recently. My mom died recently, almost nine months ago, probably. Yeah. How are you doing? Uh, I, um, I think right now, not that great about it. I think I took care of her in the final couple of months that she was sick or weeks. And I think following that, there was just kind of the, a part of the loss. And now I think that it feels the permanency of it feels more overwhelming to me. Um, and I know that death happens and it is part of this lived experience and I've lost other people before. I think there's something different about losing your mom, regardless of the kind of relationship you have with her. And for me, it certainly does feel like a, a re-abandonment. Mm-hmm. And I keep on lately, in the last couple of weeks, I keep on, I dream of her almost every night. And since she passed away, my dreams of her are, she's always sick. And in your dreams? Yeah. Yeah. I haven't had a dream where she hasn't been sick in the last year. Um, yeah. So no, I think it's a weird part. My, when my mom was very sick, my oldest brother and I talked a lot about, and in, in after she died, about kind of the impacts it has on adoption and in, in this sense of being re-abandoned mm-hmm. and kind of what to do with that. And I don't know. <laughs> I don't know quite yet. Does um, he know what he's going to do with I it? I mean, he, sa- uh, he says he's okay. He says that he... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> He says that he's dealt with it. He went through some adoption stuff maybe a handful of years ago and really was pushing my parents to have these conversations. And my parents have always been open to having these conversations, but he really was doing this deeper dive into his adoption and what it meant and the impacts on his identity. Um, And so I think he felt like he had found this resolution. I think that the thing about being adopted is that, and maybe it's just a thing about life, right? Is that you have one issue and you can work through it or work, try to work towards it and it resolves, but then there's just a different issue that kind of comes up, right? And so I think adoption, it's, it's always a little bit open-ended mm-hmm. um, in what, Triggers because we don't live in a really adopted friendly world. Yeah. You know, like some people feel like they're trying to find their identity. I guess my question to you is some people are trying to find their identity, but as an adoptee, do you feel like it was that or was there was there an aspect of trying to get rid of your identity? I think it's a little bit of both. And then I think it's like neither. Um, I think that we're trying to find an identity. We're trying to find everyone has a a need to belong, right? And to find that sense of belonging. And because it's already been foreclosed that you can't belong if you are adopted, then you have to find another way. And partially, if it was just okay that you could be adopted and that that identity was part Mm -hmm. of 
an acceptable list of identities, <laughs> then there wouldn't be a need to kind of recreate or try to quote unquote assimilate or culturally to whatever identity is shifting or moving around you. I mean, I do think that you know, people are chameleons to an extent to an extent because of this desire to belong. And so, and I think adoptees are particularly adaptable because of because of all of these unspoken expectations and assumptions and um, and need for to define who they are in ways that make other people feel comfortable, right? It's not really about making the adoptee feel comfortable or... It's like to, I, like, acclimate to the situation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember when we were, like, preparing for the interview, you know, or talking about the interview, you had brought up your professor when you were doing uh, your uh -huh. dissertation. Uh-huh. And I guess my question is, some people, you know, may think that because you were adopted and had a home to grow up in, that everything should be fine. Mm -hmm. What do you say to that? I would say that that's a very capitalistic, materialistic <laughs> way of looking at family and home. <gasps> I mean, there are lots of things. I, I do not discount the privileges that I've had in my life and the advantages and the opportunities that I've had in my life because of my adoption, because that would also be denying my lived experience. And, and I fully recognize that there's some things that I did um, have and will because of being adopted. I think that it's just love is, is just always also not always enough. Right. So I think that, or you're loved with like a huge gash on your body. Yeah. But no one will actually talk about that huge gash yeah. that's on your body. <laughs> it's like they can sort of feel it, but they can't understand it. Yeah. And so when people can't really understand what's going on with someone else or what's around them, the best, the survival strategy in that is just to ignore it, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think that when we were talking before, it's like, there's this idea for people of color that there's a double consciousness. And I think for adoptees, there's kind of a triple consciousness. And then I think at times it's a schizophrenic consciousness, right? Because mm -hmm. like what, what you feel is real and what other people are coming back to you with, with proving or validating if that's real or not, doesn't always kind of line up. Um, and so I think that people's inner compasses and adoptees inner compasses actually get really kind of skewed um, because we started doing things in a society that wasn't ready for it and you can't really have um, children trying to navigate how to think about or do this better. I do think that Korean adoptees have really tried um, very hard to make it different for Chinese adoptees or for the next generation of a Chinese adoptees. And I think that that has been a, a significant intervention. I'm not sure if um, if it's enough. Yeah. Because There's more awareness, but... There's more awareness, but the ways in which our society, our mainstream society, thinks about diversity is still pretty limited and it's still pretty superficial. And so I think for us to really have a better understanding of complexity, then the transformation has to be almost radical, right? Mm -hmm. And our society is not invested in radical. They're invested in status quo for lots and lots of reasons. Um, hopefully they're a little open, though. <laughs> hopefully, but we keep on we keep on trying to push it, yeah. but even with so many people trying to push it, the, the incremental change is also so minimal. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's true of like most identities that are not within a normative understanding of identities. Rebecca, if I may say something like having been in, you know, being in the medical field, 
not many children are with their parents when they're terminally ill. And you stated before that you were with your mom for a couple of months taking care of her before her death. Mm -hmm. What an amazing gift you gave her, like at one of the most vulnerable moments in her life. Yeah. Yeah, I'm grateful for the time that we had together. We also had a lot of fun. My mom was also walking until maybe walking and moving around until maybe three days before her Wow. Before she died. So, um, and before she went unconscious. So she was also pretty present and alive until the end. I thought you were going to say that. Hmm? I thought you were going to talk about the medical part of for adoptees. I, I'm so always been so curious about that. When you do family, when you do patient history, mm-hmm. when I was growing up, you know, they would you would say that you were adopted or you couldn't answer any of these things, but it would be, the doctor would still ask you all of these questions because they still needed to gather it. And now people will still maybe ask or like, because the doctors haven't read my forms when they've come in. Um, This happened recently because they asked, my doctor asked if I had a history of, I don't know, something in my family. But I had also written on our like, form for that day. I'm adopted. I can't answer it. And she kind of caught herself. Um, But it's, yeah, what does the medical field see more as adoption has become more prolific? What is the response or what is the training associated with it? The training is to take a full history, to take time to take the full history. But with the business of medicine and the lack of time per visit, all of that information is unfortunately being sacrificed. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't remember the last time, like, I really took an in-depth, like, sexual history or family history. And I think all of that information is really relevant. But I think care is being sacrificed, getting to know that person in front of you. Mm-hmm. And that's my biggest concern. We don't know the people we're treating anymore. Mm-hmm. But what do you do for someone that has no history other than like, oh, I start from now. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think with all patients, ideally, if I'm going to help someone, I'm interested in who they are, Mm -hmm. you know, and what they've experienced to help them from now and what they can share. Mm -hmm. But even though you, you don't know your your biological parents you know, like, how you felt growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, you you carry it, and it manifests into your life. But even though you didn't know them, you know it, you know? Mm-hmm. That's how I feel. Mm-hmm. And just like the primal wound that you had described earlier, that's kind of what I wonder with you and your your mom, you know, who passed recently. Even though she's no longer here... There's like a je ne sais quoi connection that you'll always have. It's just that physically, she's not in front of you. Mm-hmm. But there's that bond that can never be broken, you know? That's what I always felt like seeing people die in the hospital. Like, majority of people you'd be surprised actually die alone. You know, many people die in the hospital, but many people die alone. And then sometimes when you see family in the room when someone's like imminent, that's almost the most like heartbreaking for me because they're mourning, you know, as their loved one goes. But there is something where you realize that bond, even if that person's not here, it can never be broken. Mm-hmm. And I think there's healing within that you helped with, you know, at the end of her life. And I think even with her gone, there's still like love and reconciliation that can be done. That's how I feel. You know, just when I see someone, you know, after someone dies and the family's walking out of the hospital, they're just not here physically. Yeah. But they're there. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much for this interview. And I'm sorry for that. Uh. 
me say one last thing? Yeah. <laughs> what do you want me to Just say? say? Thank you. Thank uh, you, Rebecca. Yeah, thank you for having me on your podcast. And you clearly do make connections with your patients. Otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting here. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> See you next time on another edition of Lost or Found. Please subscribe and follow Dr. Michelle Choi on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Are you looking for a unique perspective to help you gain insight into your health and well-being? Schedule a virtual wellness visit with Dr. Michelle Choi by going to our website, drlostorfound.com.